Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Brian Schimpf, the co-founder and CEO of Andrel Industries, a company founded in 2017 to improve U.S. national security by moving fast, by investing its own resources to more quickly develop ever more capable autonomous systems for the United States and its allies uh, and deliver them at scale. Brian, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having somebody from the Andrel team join us. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you having me on today. Uh, indeed. Welcome. Uh, and before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's upcoming Airspace Cyber conference and trade show. Uh, Brian, as I said, great uh, to have you uh, aboard. As everybody knows uh, in the audience, Andrel was founded to change the game. Uh, as Trey has explained, you know, you guys started with software, but because the government wasn't maybe as good at buying software as they as they should be, you guys started working on the hardware in which you're embedding uh, your really um, uh, good software. You guys have focused on uh, all manner of autonomous surveillance and, and strike systems, but the war in Ukraine has become a laboratory, a bit like the Spanish Civil War. What are the lessons, you know, so much so, in fact, that the DOD is sending its teams to Ukraine in order to be able to study what it is uh, they're doing? What are the lessons and the trends from this war that are shaping your business, your strategy and your priorities? Well, I think first and foremost, the idea that we can arm and support our partners and allies and enable them to fight and defend their own interests is a really powerful one. And I think that's actually a significant shift. And I've seen it probably most material play out in terms of how both you know folks in Taiwan, like the Taiwanese themselves, as well as how U.S. DOD and kind of national security policy has played out, has, has really significantly shifted. But I think the reality is the types of systems that the U.S. is investing in from that perspective of force projection, how would the U.S. itself fight, it's not always exactly what you would want to give to partners and allies. And so there we've seen a lot of success in things that are, you know, both from legacy U.S. systems, you know, Gimler's rockets, HIMARS, Javelin, all these are sort of, you know, much more tactical systems that have been used to great effect. Um, but the, the U.S. sort of struggles with you know the higher end systems and, and how are we really going to you know provide these to allies and are they going to be used to the best effect the other really interesting trend we've seen is is something we've believed for quite some time which is in a lot of ways the way that warfare shifted is in some sense making the targets uneconomic and so you know kind of defending up these you know kind of large massing stations depoting stations things like that very very hard mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, you can kind of entrench and build up your defenses for cities and, and critical infrastructure, but even that's quite challenging. And so seeing this sort of push to smaller forces, smaller units with their own ability to run ISR, uh, run full holistic kill chains, be able to operate somewhat independently is something that I think is under this world of sort of constant observation and constant contact, you you, you just really see the need to push units to be much more autonomous at a much lower echelon. And that's a huge shift. And I think we've seen, you know, kind of the army reflect on that and how that's going to operate. Um, and, you know, how can they equip their force for the future with regard to that? 
Um, and a lot of the technologies we've been working on have been with that in mind. So how do I take what are very high-end U.S. kill chains, you know, very large, expensive autonomous systems, uh, you know, assuming air superiority, all these pieces, and push it down so that much lower echelons are able to consume large amounts of information, it, process it, understand it, and react, and, you know, kind of deploy effects very, very quickly without needing that very high-end support. That's something that I think is a major shift. I think it is, you know, sort of inevitable uh, in the future of how this plays out, um, because I think you're looking at these trends of, you know, everything is sort of observable. If you admit you're going to be found, uh, the the impact of long range fires is very substantial. All of these pieces together uh, are, are really consequential. And then, you know, you look at what Ukrainians have been able to do with unmanned surface vessels and being able to push back a Black Sea fleet relatively efficiently and getting better by the week. That's a very consequential change. You know, putting those very large assets at risk at a very low cost, that's huge. Uh, and I think that part's been sort of under looked at uh, and I think has a lot of consequences both for a U.S. military strategy and how do we support our allies and partners. Um, let me take you uh, to uh, the, the sort of the business model, model, right? I mean, you're fundamentally different from the heritage contractors in that you guys are investing your own money to develop systems and then bringing them to the Pentagon and government and allies sort of more as a cash and carry model, as opposed to the heritage industry that charges you pretty much to get anything uh, done uh, at the end of the day. Um, the, the, the reason the current system rewards people with deep pockets is the Pentagon you know, you bring stuff to the Pentagon and the Pentagon says, wow, Brian, brilliant idea. I'm now going to compete that. And and somebody with, again, deeper pockets can can low bid and, and win it and make it up on, on production. Do you do you see signs that that heritage model is changing to something that favors those who have products and are demonstrating capability and an ability to scale and to deliver those products? Are you seeing a change in the system? Well, I think if you look at you know, you go back, you know, maybe 15, 20 years, and the idea that you would have novel entrants that are working in space launch, uh, low cost satellites, aircraft across the board, low cost, like just sort of all these areas. There was a view for a while that only the existing industrial base could do these things, uh, that the technical sophistication only exists in that place. And there was no way you can get, you know, kind of the capital to go after these larger scale systems. I think the reality is that has shifted. New entrants are able to deliver these things on a very fast time scale, looking at new approaches on it. Um, there's very few areas remaining where I think anyone would make the claim that you can't find new entrants that could do this, that there's no way the technology and the talent base exists outside of that. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that's a, a very big shift. I think the other shift we've seen is there's a move to much more low cost systems. Uh, you know, this is obviously played out in the drone world. Nobody's going to fund like, you know, kind of a small drone program, uh, but they'll buy them. If they exist, they can kind of compete and, and purchase it. Uh, I think this is going to expand into weapons space. I think this is going to go to like larger aircraft where, uh, you know, I, I just see kind of across the board, there's a lot of areas where novel technology can really shift the cost curve. You can get things much faster and you can bring technology to field much quicker. I, I think that battle has been won in the sense of now people believe it is possible. What has been slower to shift is the buying behavior. So how do you actually go about procuring these systems kind of off the shelf or tailoring them uh, or, you know, kind of doing these very quick prototypes and, and seeing what actually works? 
that is a, a slower burn thing. Now, I think it will take time to work through the system. A lot of these are 10 year commits. They're very long. You know, the government is quite invested in existing platforms. It will take time for that shift to happen. But I think as these areas come up for competition, as new people are showing, you know, as, as new areas are being invested in, we are seeing a significant shift in how do they think about the role of new entrants? How can they procure and acquire differently? It's not across the board. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, places where the capital cost and the difficulty to actually get these technologies ramped is substantial. And the, and the government does have a very serious role in kind of uh, making those sort of like business cases close, making the capital actually make sense. Um, I think a lot of the developmental things really do help with these long range, high risk investments that otherwise don't have a good business case behind them. So I do think there is there is very much a role there. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, what I've seen the government respond to incredibly well is companies saying, you know, I have put time to understand your problems. I have thought really hard about what might make them go. And I've even thought about what acquisition strategies might work. And so there's been a huge return to just leaning in with, you know, IRAD ideas, a roadmap, a vision of where this can go. And that I've seen very much. That is isn't that is the core of what has enabled us to succeed so far is we're really putting our money where our mouth is. We're leaning ahead on you know what where the future needs to go, and we're seeing a huge response to that. We're really, I think, it's about bringing that vision and ideas um, even more than just the capital. It, is the um, the Air Force's announcement last week uh, that it was picking a relatively uh, picking a small company, Jet Zero, uh, as effectively the prime to develop a blended wing body demonstrator? And then have the large heritage companies like Northrop Grumman, RTX, and others on this team in this in this broader partnership is seen by many as sort of a watershed development. From from your standpoint, uh, for for some it is a lone example, but an important one. From your standpoint, was was that an important watershed to have somebody smaller uh, as opposed to you know being in the driving uh, driver's seat as opposed to traditionally we would pick a Boeing, a Lockheed, or a Northrop to do that kind of work. No, absolutely. I, I think the Jet Zero announcement was was huge. I think the 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 idea that you know there is real talent in the space and that ideas are going to come out from outside of it is is awesome. And I think what I would also say is a lot of the you know the Northrop's and the uh, Lockheed's and whatnot are are really trying to figure out how best to work with this new breed of companies. Like I have seen a shift in understanding that these types of companies are here to stay they have new ideas and um you know believing there is something mutually beneficial out of it that, that's actually been a huge shift i think when we started and you know my past life as well it was it was very much a, a zero-sum piece right like you were sort of um you were here to take their work share they had no time of day for you very dismissive what could you possibly bring that's novel here everything's been tried but I think the idea that you know you can move faster and there is something to learn is is actually a very big shift here. And so we've been building fantastic relationships with a lot of the existing players in the space. Um, and I, and I think there's just a very healthy way to view this. And I think defense is unique in that you're always going to have this sort of semi-cooperative, semi-competitive dynamic. There's you know kind of a fixed pool of players, uh, you know, slowly growing over time. And we're each going to have to work with each other. 
And it's just right. figuring out how best to do this, where you can really complement, how you can work out mutually beneficial arrangements. And it's it's a very positive thing once you can kind of view it in that light. But that is a big shift. I think prior it was very much a a view of how do we keep people out or, you know, kind of um, or it's cute or maybe it's something interesting, but it's not serious. Uh, I, I think that doing a program of that scale with a new entrance indicates from the government that they actually do want new players in this and that the primes are, are going to need to really figure out a great way to work with them that's not, you know, purely novelty. I, I want to get uh, to a little bit of the mechanics, but how in this model, uh, Brian, do you guys not get hurt? Because there is the innovative uh, innovators dilemma, right? You, you know, you come up with the better mousetrap, you show it to the Pentagon, the Pentagon studies that the Pentagon is great at telling everybody, hey, set me a banquet and I will pick what I like from it. And then sometimes it's not hungry, right? But you're still out the cost of the food, uh, not to uh, have an overwrought analogy. Um and then often it's to study the design and then to compete it to, to try it, right? I mean, the acquisition regulations actually kind of work against you in a sense. Are, are you are there enough signs that it's changing the customers thinking through the requirement very carefully? I mean, we have an alphabet soup of organizations that have uh, emerged, but there's still, a, you know, do, do you do you see the signs that it's actually changing and that um, you know, you guys can survive and thrive in this in, in environment of bringing, you know, companies to the to uh, bringing products to the, the the customer needs, but getting them to actually buy them and buy them in scale. So, you know, I think where we've succeeded the most is finding these areas where there is an urgent problem and taking the time to really understand the nature of that problem, how it needs to be solved, and how holistically the government needs to acquire this. Um, and, and the acquisition model, I think, is like kind of underserved, right, where you, you got to put yourself in their shoes and actually think through like they're operating in the constraints of a system. They got to field this. They got to deploy it. They got to upgrade it. They got to sustain it. There's all these different parts to it that I think if you really take the time to partner with them to understand, you know, how do you, how are you actually going to solve this problem? And is this a problem worth solving for you? That goes a really long way. And so that urgency dimension to it has been really critical for us. What's a problem that you know, needs to be solved, they're going to solve it one way or another, and they're actually going to put resources behind it. Where I see a lot of novel tech fail is it fails this urgency test. Yeah, it's good. Yes, right. it would make things better, but it's not moving the needle in terms of, you know, the ability to, um, you know, support Ukraine, defend Taiwan, project force, you know, sustain the force, right? There's just not that clarity around why do we need to solve this now? Uh, in a world where they have to make real resource trade-offs, that's that's a big driving factor of it. What are they going to actually push out on? You know, the the um, other part of this is um, the the technology piece. Like you know, in terms of like you know competing it and all of that, I think that what I've seen is the biggest shift is speed. There is a desire to get things to field fast, and you cannot start from scratch, and you cannot run a ten-year design program to get things to field fast. And so I think with speed, it really does favor investment. It really favors companies leaning in, understand where things are going and putting points up because otherwise they will just be out of the running. There's just no way to catch up. And I think that's the area where I've seen the biggest shift is, you know, this urgency combined with the timelines that make it impossible to do a from scratch traditional development program. Those are starting to happen. And I think these very large, very expensive, long development programs will get less and less frequent. 
Um, let me uh, go to the business model and how you manage to scale, right? Because that's critical in what you're doing, right? Not only is it smarter thinking, but be able to surge uh, production and and give the customer what they want in a, in a relevant uh, time scale. Um, even with enormous resources, the you know supply chains are very very strained to try to produce some of these systems, right? We're we've made decisions last year, but it's not going to be until 24 uh, that we uh, see the fruits of that. What are you guys doing in the supply chain? And is greater verticality, a la SpaceX and Tesla, the ways that you guys are doing this, right, to control more of what you can control, so that you can deliver on your time scale as opposed to somebody else's? Uh, honestly, the answer is a little bit of all of the above, and I think the, you know, our, our view is a, a couple different things. So. Where are we going to be able to do scale differently? I think we can really take advantage of the commercial industrial base in a pretty interesting way. I think for the areas of technologies we're working on, there's smart ways to design things, and you kind of don't need to, all the time, design it to the level of rigor that you know the traditional aerospace company, you know, traditional aerospace programs have had been subjected to. We're not making manned fighters, right? And like you know, that's a very high bar. Uh, but when you're thinking about more unmanned and autonomous systems it kind of changes the supply base you can work from. And there's a lot that would be interested in working with uh, the US government and working on these important problems. So one, I think there's a huge amount of commercial supply chain and industrial base that can be tapped into in a very significant way. Two, I think the, the verticalization is is probably the, the wrong way we think about it. It's not sort of verticalization as a strategy, it's sort of as a necessity. So we'll invest in, you know, kind of key components where we see there's a significant deficiency in the supply chain, or we think there's something we can do that, you know, is really enabling for, you know, the future of autonomous systems or, or you know, anything in that sort of regard. Um, you know, we don't, it, it really often comes down to this speed and flexibility aspect where, I think a lot of the traditional base has gotten used to 18 to 24 month delivery timelines and, you know, very high cost to do changes. It, it's just not the future. Uh, and there is a large base, particularly again, in that commercial world that doesn't think that way, but there's a lot of players who still do. And so thinking about where can we, you know, drive down cost, get our speed up, get our flexibility up. That's really huge. But the other part with defense is like the, the breadth of functionality you need is massive. We're not going to go invent all of our own mission payloads. That's not realistically an option. Uh, we're not going to be able to, you know, invest in, you know, composites at the scale that, you know, would uh, Spirit Era Systems would or anyone like that. So there are these these real areas where we know there's an existing base that's extremely good that has built up technology over a long period of time, and that is not something that you can you know, overnight flip a switch on. And so we've built a, a bunch of very good relationships with, you know, kind of other companies in the space, key suppliers, all of that, where they're, we're taking advantage of tech that they've invested in. We're able to bring it to field faster. Uh, and we're often able to to scale quite quickly with them. And that's been a very, very productive relationship as well. So we kind of look at it holistically where, you know, that aspect of speed and scale, kind of both, you know, how fast can I introduce changes or new products into the field and how fast can I ramp? Kind of looking at those core dimensions of it, uh, is very, very critical. And then invent where we have to. Like, But it, it's sort of more of a last resort uh, or an area where we see there's a real advantage than anything that we're trying to verticalize you know, for the sake of it. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, the data rights uh, issue. I increasingly, we're seeing the department wants uh, platforms where it has full data rights access. 
Uh, that uh, we saw that in the case of the future long-range assault aircraft, uh, where Bell was not only de uh, declared technically uh, compliant, but was actually offering the data to the customer, and the customer was willing to pay more uh, for that. You guys are developing this capability. Uh, you're doing it on your uh, nickel and not uh, the customers. Are are data rights in play and an issue? And and what's your uh, philosophy in in approaching the data rights issue. So I think on the data rights front, there's there's a lot of ways to slice it. And what we've tried to do is just work with the government on um, what are they trying to get out of it? Because often it's it's a little bit muddled and it's one tactic to accomplish their ends. Th this can be a lot of different pieces. Sometimes it's the ability to have a flexible modular architecture so that I can upgrade, you know, new mission systems or, you know, kind of push new mods without needing to do, you know, all up redesign, you know, I can kind of bound the cost of those things. Maybe it's long-term support and sustainment of the system. Um, you know, it, it can be a lot of different aspects to this and thinking about what are they really trying to solve. We've been able to have incredibly productive discussions on this. We've even put out, you know, some policy positions on software data rights pilots and how can you think about, you know, getting the right data rights at the right time to incentivize commercial innovation and investment into these areas. So we've found that, you know, when you really just start working through what are the problems, what are we trying to solve for, and are the tactics that are being employed actually getting you to that end state, I think it's an incredibly productive discussion. And, and we haven't had really any issues with that. So we've done everything from you know, full, hey, you know, here's a license for a thing through to, you know, here's a pilot and a demonstration all the way through you have full government purpose rights on this software, or hardware or design or anything like that. We're not particularly dogmatic on the matter. And it really is just a matter of like, you know, what are they trying to solve for? How do we, you know, really ensure we can remain, you know, competitive and bring them the best tech and that the business model closes. And that's been a very fruitful relationship. I, I think the other side of this is, you know, sort of Elon had this view with respect to sort of IP rights in China. It's like, well, I, I really don't care if they have the version of the Tesla today. I'm going to have five versions by the time they can rip this one off. Uh, and I think there's a degree to which that if you're actually constantly bringing new value, we start looking at this of how is the department able to constantly refresh and think about the lifecycle costs in a very different way, you end up having much less of the zero-sum fight over the initial data rights. Like if I'm actually inventing and it's worth the government continuing to invest with me, well, that's quite interesting. I think everyone wins in that case. And we can think about the life cycle in a really smart way and the long tail costs. But if I'm, you know, if my only business case closes because I've got, you know, 20 years of stagnation on this thing and I got to make up my profit over that long tail, man, that's a bleak world for everyone involved. And so we, we tend to stay away from those worlds. We tend to stay into worlds where there's a lot of invention and the value of continuing to work with us is is quite clear. And if we're not valuable anymore, well, you know what? I hope they hire someone else because we've lost and we're just not interesting as a company anymore. Um, well, at, at least you've got that going for you, uh, Brian. Uh, you guys have that going for you, uh, uh, certainly. Um, let me uh, ask you about uh, artificial intelligence, right? It's a, it's a key enabler. It's uh, integral. Uh, to the more capable future autonomous systems uh, we need to be developing, especially those that are going to operate in contested and denied air and sea space and subsea, uh, obviously, right, where um, you, you can't really phone home uh, that easily, which is something you guys do as well. The DOD has set its AI principles out. The administration is working on broader sort of guidance. You know, there's 
you know, some of this, there is a concern that the big companies want sort of an AI truce not to get into a, you know, uh, an AI arms race as opposed to necessarily ethics on it. From from your perspective, do we have the right approach when it comes to AI-enabled weaponry at this point? So I, I, I think the the AI kind of question is is really tricky because I think people who are working deeply in the space see it as a hugely significant advancement. So, you know, starting with, you know, kind of all the convolutional neural networks and all the pieces around computer vision and all those pieces really about six, eight years ago, going into now some of the generative models, what you can accomplish there. Um, I think there's a deep appreciation that this is a, this is a step change. This is not like, you know, marginally different from how software was built before. This is fundamentally different. But the fascinating thing with the AI space is it is very much about application. How will you use this? Where can you use it? Um, you know, how does it influence your design, your decisions, and what levers you have available? Um, and, and interestingly, it's it's hard to do that standalone, right? So it's hard to say we have an AI program. You can fund a lot of AI research, and that's actually like probably a good thing for DoD to be doing. Um, but it's even still, the amount of money going into it, it's going to be very marginal. So in a lot of ways, the question is, how can you harvest what is working in the research fields? Um, how can you take advantage of like the cutting edge GPUs, right? Like, so the other dirty secret with all the AI spaces, when you look at the progress and performance of AI systems, the single best predictor by far, it's not, you know, there's occasional step change algorithm improvements, but it's really just... GPU, you know, performance per watt. That's it. That's the that's the metric. And so it's moving so fast and changing so fast that you have to have this mindset of how do I constantly adopt the latest and greatest? And there's no one technical innovation that I'm going to be able to rest my hat on and say I've solved it, right? And so so that that becomes sort of the nature of what's going to happen with a lot of these AI programs. It's about adoption, implementation, and use into actual systems. Now, I think vis-a-vis -vis weapon systems, there's you know, on the one hand, we've already had a large body of, you know, kind of policy and thinking around how can I have more, uh, let's say, self-directed weapon systems where, you know, we've had anti-radiation missiles, you know, all, all these different capabilities that I'm kind of putting a thing in a box and saying, hey, go over here. And if it matches a signature, engage. Right. That model has existed for, for quite a long time. We have the policy and frameworks around it. And I think the U.S. is on the whole had the right view. If you employ a weapon system, you are accountable for the results. So that leads you down a path of, you know, we are going to want to have a lot of predictability and human agency in how these systems are employed. I think the other side of this is, is we're going to have much more willingness to adopt and take risk on defensive systems. So where it's protecting human life and responding to an incoming threat, the U.S. is going to naturally be much more willing to um, engage with, you know, kind of different autonomous pieces there. As it starts going more offensive, we'll correctly hold a very high bar for how this works. And so it, I think, you know, I, I think that's the the weapon system debate is is quite tricky on this because I think it, you know, naturally goes to this notion of sort of Terminator robots and uh, Skynet. But the reality is going to be the, the U.S. already has a lot of very good thinking on this. And the challenge for the U.S. is going to be very much one of adoption, pace of fielding, and all the other problems we've talked about, which is how do you stay on top of this incredibly fast pace of AI development? 
but we already have an amazing amount of policy and legal frameworks and thinking in place on how to ethically employ these types of systems. We've been doing it for 40 or 50 years at this point. Um, so, so I think it's a, it, it, you know, we've been using AI. We've probably got the largest number of deployed production, you know, systems using machine learning on right. sensor systems. You know, we, we've been doing this for, for quite a while now. I think the generative pieces are substantial and different in kind. Um, but, you know, with anything we've seen with this, it's a technology, it's a, it's a way of thinking, and it's something that we will have to adopt over time. Um, your uh, uh, former uh, boss, though, Alex Carp, uh, uh, makes uh, the argument that our adversary, you know, that we can't be squeamish about this, that our adversaries are going to employ this uh, in a way that will be, uh, is likely to be very different than how we would employ it. And there are those who are arguing that, look, we, we need to set sort of international rules of the road on this, which which unfortunately sometimes don't survive contact. What's the sense on sort of the most ethical but non-Pollyanna way to do this, given the concern that our adversaries are not going to be nearly as ethical in how they employ these technologies as we so I think it's very hard to imagine a world where, say, in 10, 20 years, China and Russia have significantly adopted AI technologies, uh, and the U.S. has sort of, of taken a pause on this. It's going to be very, very hard to convince adversaries when they're increasingly going to have a choice in a multipolar world where you know they can buy their weapon systems from who they align with, when the U.S. doesn't have you know kind of the the capabilities uh, to to provide them right so it's like you know sort of on that end of the spectrum it's hard to regulate and push forward an ethical position when you're not even in the game um now i i think the reality is that the us through you know experimenting with this understanding how it can be used where it is reliable how it works well and putting points against you know, kind of the key things to address those safety concerns and address those ethical pieces, you know, putting in points against making these systems explainable, putting real requirements on that, that will, we can manifest a, a world of this that we actually, actually want to see. Um, you know, right. I, I do believe it is within our control to actually do this in the right way. Um, you know, one of the, the pieces I truly believe with, you know, what I believe will be a substantial AI revolution is, this has an immense power to lift up the economy, lift up pr productivity, make people way more empowered. It does not have to be bleak and destructive. Um, it right. has the ability to massively increase the precision and context and accuracy that you know every defense system, intelligence system, weapon system is able to operate in. I truly believe it can be a force for good if we put the points against actually doing that. But I am very confident if we put no points against it, the world will be pretty bleak on this. And so I, I think it's, you know, I am truly an optimist on these things. I, you know, I wouldn't be doing this startup world if I didn't have conviction that, you know, through actually <laughs> investing, uh, through actually putting, you know, real skin in the game on this and leaning forward into what is uncertain, but not inherently high risk, that we can actually manifest a better outcome. Like, I truly believe that's possible. Um, we've got about two minutes left. And uh, fortunately, I only have uh, two uh, questions. There are those who look at some of this as innovation theater. Right. Uh, the multiplicity of organizations that have been created in the last uh, couple of years, the new commands and the all the X's. Um, at the end of the day, there is a debate, right, that some of this is just theater, whereas others say mm, there's some theater, but it's actually helped galvanize support for change and to move faster. Where do you fall on that? Do you think that all of this 
churn has actually been productive and and sort of opened people's eyes at different layers by being touched by this that hey wait a minute there is a better way to build this mousetrap and a, and and a better way to do this yeah i mean i've i've certainly been on the the side of arguing that we're not doing the right things and and it is innovation theater in a lot of ways what I will give credit for is very much exactly what you said. This is about proving to people that new approaches are possible, that with technology, we can actually accomplish new things and we can do it quickly. It was sort of without proof, hard to believe that was true, right? Like, you know, in a lot of ways, defense was was the refrain I always heard from people who had been in defense a little too long was everything's been tried, nothing can be done. And that is just not the world I, I believe in and it's not a good world to right. live in. And I think the idea that, you know, through basically like actually driving some of the experimentation, we believe new things can actually be accomplished. You know, the other side of this, I think there's a recognition at this point that investing in a thousand companies is probably the wrong answer, right? And a thousand small technologies is probably the wrong answer. Yeah, some of those will be good. And that's very much a, a research mentality, right? If I need research, I need a thousand flowers bloom, right? We'll find out what's right. interesting and I'll harvest what's good. But when you actually start talking about driving real change, you got to look at how do I actually get technologies to field quickly uh, and how do I scale the things that are working? And it's a pretty simple metric. And you know, if the COCOMs are actually able to get what they need to fight, the operators can get what they need to fight, our allies are supported, I think we're doing it right. And so I think there's been a big shift. You know, I, I One of my favorite things that came out over the last year or two was Bill LaPlante talking about, you know, all that matters is production. All this science right. isn't helping us. I 100% agreed with him. Um, you know, he thought I was going to be pissed when we bumped into each other, but it was like, no, that was exactly right. And we 100% agree with you. And so I, I think there's been a shift. We got through this, you know, innovation theater period. And now we're moving into like, how do we actually scale things to field quicks? We believe it is now possible. We didn't before. Um, that was that uh, tech bro uh, comment. You've got to go. Let me ask you uh, one uh, last uh, question. And may uh, the force be with you, by the way, Brian, when it comes to uh, producing, because we do need to scale and produce uh, a lot more, a lot faster. Last uh, question. Where do you, you know, initially there was a lot of skepticism uh, when you guys were born. And now, uh, you know, the bigs are partnering and looking forward to uh, partnering. The whole ecosystem is where do you guys want to be? say in five years or in 2030 and is it reasonable to see you guys in the top 20 yeah i think for us the the metric of success is are we getting systems fielded and are they making are moving the needle for operators right like that's how we viewed success um and you know i think if we can do that and the business case closes and it actually all works out you know i will feel incredibly good that we made a real dent in national security um you know i I think it's been working so far. We're extremely optimistic about the next handful of years. I think we're going to have some incredibly powerful capabilities. You know, you just look at what we've been doing with um, the Australians and underwater vehicles. You know, there's a lot of other really cool things on the U.S. side. So I think we're very, very rapidly moving up the scale, complexity, and impact of the capabilities we're working on. And for us, I think that's going to continue to ramp. We're going to be working on higher, higher end systems. And I think we're going to have more and more impact on this. Um and if we can do that, I will feel incredibly successful. I mean, that's really the aim for us. Ryan, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And best of luck to uh, you and the entire team. Uh, always look forward to having somebody from the team back on. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.